Good morning. Thank you again for the privilege and the invitation to be with you today, trusting again that the Lord Jesus Christ is meeting us as he promised, and that we are here because he has drawn us to be here and to love and to serve him as well. Uh, Let's open your Bibles to John chapter 4. Our first scripture today is a familiar one for us. As we worship and we think about the the topic of joy in true worship, talking about Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, a very familiar portion of Scripture for most of us, particularly I want to call your attention when we come to the end of it, and and the Jesus dialogue with her about what worship is and who he is as well. So it's listen to God's Word, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For her disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to him, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Jesus is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to you, to her, I who speak to you am he. And from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, three verses, the first three of chapter 3 of Philippians. Let's listen again to God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Amen. Last time I was here, I told you about my junior high coach, and so today I want to talk to you about my high school coach. I have one more coach in college, so if I'm invited one more time, I'll start that one as well, okay? I did not know this until January, but there is an organization called the Pittsburgh Basketball Club, and they have their Hall of Fame, and so my high school coach was nominated and voted to enter into the Pittsburgh Basketball Club Hall of Fame this past January. It was a great honor for him and well-deserved for all that he had done. He's now been retired for many years. The second most thing he likes as compared to basketball and playing and coaching is fishing. So now in his retired years, he goes to Florida every winter, and he's the president of a fishing club in Florida, and they fish every day. So he wasn't here to, in, in person to receive the award, and so he asked me if I would accept it on his behalf, and I was grateful to do that. They asked me if I'd say a couple things about him, and so there were three things in particular that I remember what he taught us and what have stood with me for the remainder of my life. The first one was this. When we were in our senior year, we had a long history, over 25 years of our high school, never doing anything worthwhile as far as winning and losing. We were always losing. When he came here up three years before that, he wanted to begin to change the culture, but that was hard to do. So finally, by my senior year, he was convinced this was the group of people that was going to change Beaver Falls basketball from losing to winning. And so the way that he did that, when he looked at our schedule, our section schedule, and he saw that we opened at Newcastle in January, he said, for us to do well and to win, we have to win that first game. And so all during the month of December, all we did every day was practice for Newcastle. We didn't care who we were playing in exhibition season, didn't matter what the team was, we never even thought about them. All we thought about all the time was Newcastle, Newcastle, Newcastle. They were known for an aggressive and very physical defense, and so we practiced against that every day. And so to try to enhance that, he would put seven or eight guys against us so that we were always playing with more people than what normally was allowed, and he encouraged them to be physical with us. He never called blew a whistle, never called a foul, and so for the month of December, there was a lot of hostility between those of us who were on the varsity and the JV who we played against every day. We finally came to our first game in Newcastle, and lo and behold, something that had never happened before, we won the game. I remember reading the paper that day. It was the Newcastle paper. 
It said last night Beaver Falls played Newcastle, and we think we saw the Saxon champions. And it wasn't Newcastle, it was Beaver Falls. The first thing I learned, if you ever want to achieve anything worthwhile, you really have to work really, really hard at it. And when you think you've worked hard enough, you've only just begun. That was a good lesson to learn. Second lesson I learned from him is we did win the section championship that year. At that particular time, only the section champion went on to move in the playoffs. But for us to win the section championship, it was a playoff because we had tied with another team. And so when we went to the playoff game, we found out at the end of the game, we won by one point at a basket by the end of the game. Okay? So when we came back the next day, it was the first time that anything had happened good in Beaver Falls basketball in over 25 years. We had a tremendous pep rally where even all the business people and the parents and everybody from the city came to the high school for the pep rally. School was called off. It ended up we had a parade going through town, and so we marched out and went down through the city. Everybody was happy. We come back. By the time we get back to the school, it's time for practice. And so the thing I remember about practice that day was when I came up onto the court, there wasn't a basketball there. I thought, wow, this is really strange. He's going to get it easy on us because we won last night. Then when I found out, we had our most difficult practice of the whole year. We did nothing but conditioning and strength and running and physical things without a basketball for two hours straight. And I remember about halfway through that when the assistant coach came by one of the stations I was at and just, I was really tired and really frustrated and really angry. And I said to him, do you mind going to coach and reminding him that we did win last night? And I knew he wasn't going to do that. And when it was over and done, a second lesson I learned was this. Is that when you're trying to reach those goals, don't forget about the little things of life that need to be done well, day in and day out, because that is what usually separates from achieving and not. The third thing that I remember is at the end of the year, eventually our team won the state championship. And so I remember that he's being interviewed by a reporter, and the reporter came up to him, and I was standing right beside him. And the reporter said, hey, coach, great season, great job. Tell me, coach, do you think you could beat any high school team in the country? And I, I, was, I was watching my coach, and, you know, I'm feeling good because we just won. And, but I knew, and he both knew that, well, we had already lost some games that year, so it's almost impossible to say that you're going to win any night that you can. He goes, and his answer was this, you know, there's a lot of good teams out there. And he says, you could really play a very, very good game, and you could go up against another really, really good team, and you could play as well as you could do, and you know something, you could get beat. And so, no, I, I can't tell you that on any given night that we'll beat any team in the country. And then he paused for a second. And then he said this, but I'll tell you what I do, so. You let me play anybody two out of three, and we'll beat them. And what I learned that night was you always, always respect your opponents. You always admire the strengths that they have. But you never should be afraid to beat them. All those were wonderful lessons to learn on basketball court, but I think all of them apply to life as well. I think the last one in particular has some instance 
of what it means to be a person who isn't true in their worship. When we look at the three verses that Paul gave us in Philippians, the first one's a very positive sentence, the second sentence is a very negative one, and the third one's very positive again. When Doug assigned this text to me, I looked at that, and the first word said, finally, and I thought, wow, finally. Usually when I hear the word finally, I think someone's coming to the end of what they want to say. When the preacher says finally, at time, that means it's time to wake up, to kind of listen for a good point, so that when you walk out the door, you can say to them what you heard. Okay, so when I read I said, finally, but then I looked, wait, this is just the start of chapter 3. I said, we are basically, if you're counting chapters, we're only halfway through the book of Philippians. You're two months into the series, we're halfway through. We've, verse, if you count verses, we're more than halfway, but it's hard to believe that finally where we're at, I began to think, what else could that mean? And so I looked at some other translations, and there's other ones that were saying it might mean more something like this, further on, so then. And it's a continuation of what Doug introduced last week when he says now there's an internal theme that's being changed about measuring success. And when you measure success, that means there's a comparison being made between at least two different things that's going on. And so when we read our scripture today, we see there's a comparison that Paul is making and he uses it, he uses the terminology between the true circumcision and those that mutilate the flesh. What we find at the beginning of verse 3 and the end of at verse 2. That's the comparison that Paul is making as he looks at those three verses. When he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's the first time in the book of Philippians that he uses that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, those words together. And so if he's saying, so then, is an awesome reminder for us that we rejoice what? That we have a certain and, so, and, and sure relationship. Not a religion, we have a relationship that is certain and sure that will stand the test of time and for somebody that has already knows what it is to win victories. That knows what it's like to work harder than you've ever worked before, to make sure you do take care of all the little things in your life, and to know somebody who knows the strength of the opponent, but already has declared what victory is. And so finally, brothers, he says, rejoice in the Lord. The certainty or the identity that we have being known by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, to write these things, I, it's no problem. I am happy to write this, is what he's saying. This is what is certain in my life. This is, the, this is what I bank my foundation on for myself. This is what I'm sure what God has done for me. I am in no way reluctant to tell you over and over again those things that are important in my life. And in reality, they're good for you as well. They're a safeguard. They're a protection in all that we have. And so he makes the comparison, beginning in verse 2. And in verse 2, there three different times he uses the phrase, look out. Now sometimes when we use that word, we, we do it in a very positive thing. If you're taking a drive and you're on the top of, of a mountainside and you're looking out there and, and, and you see what you see and there's someone that cries, and you might say, hey, look out. Look out at the beauty that you see out there. Look at the awesomeness of what's going on out there. But that's not the tone that Paul is writing here. 
in the comparison, Paul, you could, you could almost sense his anger boiling up. He says, look out. Look out for the dogs, he says. Look out for the evildoers, he says. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. If, if you have any doubt that Paul angered people, you can say right here after this verse, there were lots of people at that time, if they would have read that verse, they would have been angered by what Paul was saying. In the scripture, there are two different words that are used for dogs. The one is a puppy dog. The one that comes up and looks at you and then turns the head to the side and the ears flop down and they pant there and they're man's best friend. That's one of the words that's used for dogs. That's not the word that's being used in this sense. The word that is used for dogs in this one refers to a pack of wild dogs who snarl and bark and are disease-ridden and are scavengers and they're out to attack and they're out to kill. He says, these are the ones that you've got to look out for. Those are the ones that be on guard with. That's what your opponents are. Know who that is. Know what the strength of that opponent is and know what they've come to do. Look out for those dogs. Second one, he says, look out for the evildoers. Usually when we think of the word evildoers, we think of those, by just by looking at somebody, we can sense that is evil by the things they say, by the way they look, by the actions that they do. We have no doubt in our minds that they're doing evil, but that's not the sense in the scripture we have here. He's talking about those who carry the false pretense of being on our side. Who want to side, side up against you and you say, yeah, uh, isn't that great? Isn't that a wonderful affirmation to know that Jesus died on the cross? And isn't that good to know how he has come and entered in our life? But, but do you also know there's more things that need to happen? He's talking about those who want to add to the work of Christ. Who want to say is that what Christ has done is good. What we do in, in addition and contribution to the salvation of God's plan is even better. And Paul says that is not adding to the truth. That's diluting the truth. And he minces no words. He says they're evil. He says, do away with that. He says, have no part of that. Look out for the evildoers. And then if there's any doubt as to who he's talking about at that particular time of day, he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those who think that the work of Christ can only be accomplished by still maintaining to the traditions of Moses, the teachings of the patriarchs, and the admiration for the outward sign of circumcision as the identity of a child of Abraham. Have you been saved? Do you know Christ? Then do this as well. And Paul says, look out. Look out. They mean well, but they're out to harm you. And so he comes and he says, now here's the good news. Here's who we are. He says, we are the true circumcision. 
And if you were one of his opponents that day and you heard that, you would feel the bite of what he was saying. You would know what is going on. And he gives us three things. It talks about what the true circumcision is. Three things here in in that verse 3 to help us to know what joy and true worship is all about. The first one is, is that true worship is that which is led by the Spirit of God. It means true worship is a supernatural event. If we would assume that we came here today on our own, and that it's by our effort alone that brought us here, and by our being here makes us right before God, and by our being right before God is determined by how many things we've done good this week or last week, or our dreams or our aspirations, or how hard we're going to work, then we're falling short. He says we are here today because we've been drawn by God. It is a supernatural event generated by the Holy Spirit. Not by our desires, not by our traditions, not by our liturgical practices, not by our style of music, not by the time of day, not by the building which we choose to come to. All those are things that we do as a corporate form of expression, which in and of themselves just bring us here, but we are here because God has drawn us here. He has brought us here. If you remember in in the passage in John chapter 4 near the end, when Jesus talked to the woman about being drawn, worshiping in spirit and truth, he goes, here is what God is looking for. He talks about it, it, it won't matter where you worship one day. It doesn't matter if it's Jerusalem or the mountain. He goes, it's where your heart is and what God has done to draw your heart to him. And then he goes, here's what God is looking for. He's looking for people when the hour is coming, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Why did God pursue you and me? Why did God say, my son will take your place on the cross? Why has he said, I have adopted you into my family? Why does God say, I am rescuing from the evilness of your own heart? And in John chapter 4, it says, we were pursued so that we will be worshipers of God. Worshipers of God. So according to Paul in verse 3, that is one of the signs of the true circumcision of a heart that has been cut and healed by God. True circumcision are those who have been sought by God to worship him in spirit and truth. But I imagine you're like me, is that in the culture we live in, in the times, we have somewhat been confined by that word worship. Is that usually when we think of worship, we think of a certain time and a certain place. That's not too far different from what the Samaritan woman thought as well. The Greek word for worship is latruo. And it means both worship 
and service. That same word means both things. They are linked together. It means we give from our heart glory and honor and praise and adoration and respect to God. It means we sing with all of our heart to the Lord. It means we pray and acknowledge his will and his character. And it means we serve him. So by extension, worship is more than the hour or so that we spend here together. Our serving is also worship. If we are the true circumcision, then our serving is also a worship to God. It goes beyond our normal Sunday morning hour and extends to the other six days of the week. We are made to worship God not only right here, right now, at this particular time, but in the place where he puts us throughout the whole week. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're told, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The context of this is when the Israelites are ready to come into the promised land. And right after that, the most immediate thing that, 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 that God says to his people that day is he talks about then, put, plant this in your children's heart as well. Teach them every hour of each day. And then he goes on and he says, and then when you walk into the promised land, look at what you see. There are cities there that you did not build. There are cisterns there that you did not dig. There are fruit trees there that you did not plant. I have given to them. They are yours. Take care of them and serve me in all that you do. That is worship in all that we do. For me... The most visible expression of that to help me to begin to understand that was a 1981 Oscar-winning picture, The Chariots of Fire. Okay, the story of Eric Little, the Olympic gold medal winner, uh, and then later on missionary to China who lost his life in a Japanese prison camp while he was there. And for those of you my age and remember those things, you know that in that movie, his family were missionaries to China. His sister did not enjoy his taking the time to run when he could be preaching and doing evangelistic services and teaching full time. And so in that picture, he takes, Eric Little takes his, his sister Jenny out for a walk. And when they're out in the walk, they have this conversation about what it means to worship God. And in the conversation, he turns to Jenny and he says, Jenny, God made me a runner. And then he said he made me fast. Not fast, fast. And then he said, and when I run, and now you have seen it, you know, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That was the first time in my life that it kind of opened up. That I began to sense that my worship was more than just the corporate gathering together, as good as this is. That my worship was even more intended to be in honor and glory to him in all that we do. 
The second thing that we read about one who is of the true circumstance, it says, we will glory in Christ Jesus. The word Paul uses for glory here is the word boasting. It means boasting with exultant joy, boasting all the time, never shutting up, always letting people know. If you want to know what people really boast about, how are you going to find that out? Here's the answer. Just listen to them. Listen to what they talk about and the pronouns that they use and the subject matter that they give. Almost every time you'll go away and say, I know what they are most proud of and what they will boast in. Paul uses this word 35 times. Every once in a while, negatively, he's like, as in he says, there are those who boast in the flesh, but most times it's in the positive one. I boast in the cross of Christ is one of the times he uses that. He wants us to know that if we're the true circumstances, we are the ones who boast in the Lord. We give all the credit to Christ. Those who are pretenders may speak of their efforts to please God, to let us know the good things they have done, which have outweighed the bad that they have done, and to let us know that God is pleased with them, and they seek our approval. But those are the true circumcision boast only in Christ. In Paul's letter to Corinthians, he says, let us boast in the Lord. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. In the following weeks, Doug will further explain what this means in this comparison of what we have measuring up to what the glory of Christ has done for us. True worship is produced from the inside by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in all that we do and say. There are many people who want Christ to be priest, who has paid the penalty of their sin, but not as the prophet who declares the covenant lawsuit in their personal life. There are many people who want the benefit of the cross, but don't want to bow down to the crown. There are many people who want heaven, but not the narrow way. There are many people who want the gift of God but want it received without empty hands. The first question of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession is this. What's the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not just for an hour on Sunday forever and in all times. And thirdly, we see those of the true circumcision are those who put no confidence in the flesh. What does Scripture mean when it uses the word flesh? It Simply put, it refers to our own ability apart from Christ, what I can do. You, you don't need to spend time with me, Christ, in this one. I can do this one alone. The direct follow-up to worshiping in the Spirit of God and glorifying in Christ. For the Jews of Paul's day, their confidence in the flesh was what they could earn on their own. What they achieved, because why? They were children of Abraham. My circumcision is proof. I listen and follow the teachings of Moses and the traditions of our fathers. Theirs was a religion of human achievement. And to that, 
Paul says, look out. Look out. Look out. To put no confidence in the flesh sounds to me what Doug has been referring to when he says, are you leaning into Jesus? It sounds like what he has said more than once. How low can you get? How low can we go to get under what Christ has done for us? The one who lives in pretense may feel bad about the consequences of their sin or bad about what their sin produces, but they do not feel bad about the evil in them that produces that sin. The ones who are the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh deal only with their conduct while those of the true circumcision recognize their condition. Natural conviction deals only with the symptoms. Spiritual conviction deals with the disease. Natural conviction pushes us away from God because we are fearful of him. Spiritual conviction draws us closer to God as he seeks us and we realize that only because of the work of Christ and by the grace of God can we worship him. One can run alone to God for forgiveness if we're leaning into them to begin with. How do we know what true worship looks like? Worship by the Spirit of God. Worship that glorifies Christ. Worship that does not boast and has no confidence in the flesh. That's true circumcision. That's true worship. That's true joy, intended to be experienced on Sunday mornings, but even more so, 24-7, day in and day out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may our worship of you in this hour be a reflection of what our worship should be every day of the week in response to your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.